Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, July the 6th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 12th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. So stay tuned. Tonight's show is on the Russian bounty allegation as yet another example of allegations and unproven claims that are transformed into certainties of fact by our government officials in alliance with the mainstream press, despite the absence of a level of evidence that would justify the certainty that they are asserting. It is as if the information we are overwhelmed with presents only one side of the story, As Herbert Marcuse described nearly half a century ago, a quote-unquote universe of discourse without opposition. It stands due process on its head. Essentially, this is like having a trial in which there is no discovery and cross-examination of witnesses and purported evidence. We are just bombarded by one point of view, where the accused repeatedly denies the allegations and is not allowed to share its case with the U.S. public. It's like a trial in which only the prosecutor is allowed to submit their arguments. Joining us tonight is Matthew Ho. Ho is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy, who is also a 100% disabled veteran, has written extensively about U.S. wars for the last decade, and has conducted hundreds of media interviews. Ho is, is a member of the Veterans for Peace following his resignation in protest from his State Department position in Afghanistan in 2009 over the escalation of the Afghan war by the Obama administration. He also served in Iraq with the Marines. But first, as we do before every show, we first go to war. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gato. Good evening. So welcome, Alternative News listeners. Wanted to start the show off tonight with just a few words about the world we live in. We live in a world where wealth inequality has shaped the rule of law, where those with the greatest wealth not only seek to maintain their privileged status, but have the means to do so through the influence of their disproportionate wealth. And that is why our focus over the last six weeks or so on this show has included wealth inequality and particularly the racial wealth divide in our pursuit to become anti-racist. The power of wealth includes and is the power to control information made more readily available and less readily available for public consumption, information that shape narratives that may appear to be true, but when you actually look for the evidence that supports them, you often find no such incontrovertible evidence of that guilt that's being alleged. 
Rather, you find allegations, repeated ad nauseum from sources that are quote-unquote anonymous intelligence officials. This is followed by a conclusion by usually non-anonymous intelligence officials of certainty that the unproven allegations are true despite the absence of that incontrovertible evidence that would justify the quote-unquote certainty that is being claimed. Meanwhile, if the alleged perpetrator of the alleged but unproven accusation denies categorically the allegation, not only are their arguments of defense not given the proper exposure and therefore vetting by the U.S. public seeking to get at the truth, also they are categorically rejected by the false argument, who are you going to believe, our intelligence and government spokespersons or Vladimir Putin or President Assad? or Saddam Hussein, denials, etc., etc. So to think critically is to see the false argument that claims near or absolute certainty as false because of the lack of evidence, not because of who said it. To think critically is to hear both sides of an allegation and the evidence they bring forth to support their positions. This is what are essential elements of due process, and they are nearly completely compromised by our mainstream media, and that is why so often we later discover that their coverage was indeed false narratives. So just quick examples. So when we think about quote-unquote conspiracy theories, what was the conspiracy theory? The majority of North and South Vietnamese supported Ho Chi Minh, or the vast majority of South and North Vietnamese were against Ho Chi Minh. Ralph McGee, in his book, Deadly Deceits, his 25 years in the CIA, explains that he was sending intelligence that confirmed that Ho Chi Minh was supported by more than 80% of the population, yet it kept on being neglected. And that later proved to be the truth, but it was not reported. In 2008, the Georgia-Russia War. Russia, without provocation, invaded Georgia in August 2008, or Georgia, led by Sakhtavelli, started that war. According to a BBC article entitled, Georgia Started Unjustified War, that's back in September 30th of 2009, again, this is like over a year after the actual invasion itself. The war in Georgia, it explained last year, it's referring to 2008, was started by a Georgian attack that was not justified by international law. An EU-sponsored report has concluded. It was commissioned by the Council of European Union and written by Swiss diplomat Heidi Taglivini with the help of 30 European military, legal, and history experts. The conflict erupted on August 7, 2008, right in the middle of the Olympics as Georgia shelled the breakaway region of South Ossetia in an attempt to regain control over it, the article described. The report it referred to said about 850 people were killed in the August 2008 war and that more than 100,000 fled their homes, about 35,000 who are still displaced more than a year later. Thirdly, to which is the conspiracy? Saddam Hussein had WMDs or Saddam Hussein did not? Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11 or he was not. Saddam Hussein harbored al-Qaeda as a policy, or he did not. We now know, and we knew at that time, in fact, that all of those were false claims against Saddam Hussein, yet over 60% of the American public continued to believe them well after the illegal invasion of Iraq in 2003. In Libya, Gaddafi was threatening and going to slaughter his own people, or he was not, in 2011. Well, what we do know is fact-based is that Libya had the highest human development index in the whole continent of Africa. Out of the 54 plus nations, the best place to live, the best place to raise your kids by far was Libya. Yet we are to believe that Gaddafi was this great humanitarian violator. 
August 13, 2013, the Algota gas attack in Syria. It was John Kerry, with absolute certainty, he claimed that the gas attack was committed by Assad. Or was it? Which is a conspiracy theory? Testimony full of false certainties in the Obama administration quest to rationalize airstrikes against Assad and in support of the moderate rebel opposition forces led by al-Qaeda terrorist forces that were losing ground at the time. John Kerry, in previous shows, we've documented four or five or maybe six absolute false claims that he made that went unchallenged by the mainstream media and almost led us to war. Then in April 4th of 2017, there was the the Khan Shikon gas attack that was laid at the hands of the Assad government. Once again, without ever providing proof, incontrovertible proof of that, the uh, allegation was widely accepted. And then April 7th of 2018, the Duma gas attack occurred in which the same issue was was claimed that it was committed by Assad. And in fact, we launched a missile strike before the OPCW, the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, even had a chance to visit the site. So think about that. In 2018 then with Duma, the United States, France, and the United Kingdom carried out a series of military strikes. 103 missiles against multiple government sites in Syria were launched before before the OPCW even had a chance to visit the site. Khan Shekom, it was 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles were launched from the Mediterranean Sea. This was a unilateral missile attack from Donald Trump. In both cases, to this day, the absolute certainty that we claim is a lie as to the responsibility of those gas attacks that prompted the missile strikes. Interestingly, barely a peep from Democrats or mainstream media of opposition to Donald Trump when he's bombing other countries on the basis of unconfirmed intelligence. Anyhow, with, with, with all that being said, the mantra has been over the last number of years, the concern that Russia is the aggressor. We wanted to take a closer look at that accusation by just juxtaposing this other information that indicates something quite different. There's a book written, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World by David Vine. And he basically just one of the first people to actually go out there and count the number of military bases that we have around the world. These are striking statistics in that it gives you the context of who is the aggressor, so to speak, argument. The United States Empire has over 800 U.S. military installations around the world. This is December of 2015. The U.S. has 95% of the world's foreign bases. Currently, the United States has about half as many bases as it had in 1989, but the number of countries with U.S. bases has roughly doubled from 40 to 80. Other countries of the world have a combined total of 30 foreign bases compared to our over 800. Great Britain has seven, France has five in their former colonies. Russia has eight military bases. Almost all of them are in the former Soviet republics, and one is in Syria, and that, of course, probably has increased one or two. The last narrative that I just wanted to put into perspective here of whether what is a conspiracy theory had to do with in the Ukraine. So is Russia the aggressor or was it more not the case? It turns out that although Yanukovych won the July 10th, 2010 Ukraine presidential election, and he may not have been the most upstanding, uncorrupt leader, to say the least, he was elected. And it was recognized elections that were, as we said, in 2010. And Viktor Yanukovych, he won the east and the south of Ukraine. Okay, so there's a guy, Robert Schumann's foundation. It's the Research and Studies Center of Europe. 
the European Elections Monitor. They did a whole study and report. It's entitled Yanukovych, Winner of the Presidential Election in Ukraine. That was back in July of 2010. This is their findings, and this is important that in this east and south of Ukraine, okay, this is where the separatists emerged, right, with those regions. Those regions were what? The Donetsk, Lugansk, the autonomous region of Crimea at the time. When you look at Donetsk, 90.4%, according to Schumann's data, supported uh, Yanukovych election. 90%, 90.4. That was in Donetsk. In Lugansk, it was 88.8%. In Crimea, it was 78.3%. And then the United States supports and orchestrates, basically, a coup, okay? And this was clearly a coup, even according to the founder and CEO of Stratfor, George Friedman, the shadow CIA firm, said in an interview on December 19th, 2014, it really was the most blatant coup in history. And the response by the U.S. media and the U.S. government was that this uprising of separatists was stirred up, instigated, totally created by Russian aggression tendencies. When in fact, if over 80% of the population voted for a president that then got cooed out, why would you not consider the possibility that they rose up to try to reinstate a illegitimately removed president that 80% had supported. This was never reported in the U.S. news. So Russia is the aggressor, or did these regions rebel on their own for their own reasons, including that the president was elected by more than 80% of their population before being forcibly removed from office? So anyhow, I just wanted to juxtapose all of that because the focus of tonight's show is on the Russian bounty accusations. And we have with us, and we want to welcome to bringing light into darkness. Matthew Ho, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Matthew. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Pedro. I appreciate it. Matthew resigned in protest from his State Department position in Afghanistan in 2009 over the escalation of the Afghan war by the Obama administration. He also served in Iraq. He has been writing eloquently about the history, and the context of the history is so important to understand what's going on in Afghanistan to begin with. There have been these accusations, Matt, since at least 2017 and 2018, and you have written about this, that Russia was supplying weapons to the Taliban. They did not materialize. And now we have accusations again. And I thought I would just ask you to maybe bring us up to date with what you think. Two things. Number one, what you think the status is there. And, and the second question, that too, we just did a whole piece on the nature of the information that we get and how pejorative it is because it leaves out so much information. And you write about that, too. You talk about the abdication of journalistic standards and ethical practice. So with those two things in mind, can you give us an update as to the history that's relevant to trying to figure out the truth of the matter around the Russian bounty story? Well, yeah, sure. Let me first say your, your, your summary at the beginning here of, of all the different episodes that have occurred over the last decades uh, is, you know, it, it's seemingly exhaustive. But as you know, Pedro, you could have gone on for an hour more, right, mm-hmm. talking about other, you mean, you, you didn't you didn't talk about Central America, you know, or Venezuela or Brazil or, you know, I mean, all these other places that the United States has been active as an aggressor has instigated coups, whether they're soft coups or, or uh, military leg coups. So the extent of U.S. involvement around the world is, I think, best understood through how many bases we have in the sense of like, that's probably the best image you can have of the octopus-like involvement throughout the world. And that certainly goes for our intelligence operations. 
if we have 800 military bases around the world, how many intelligence operations are going on throughout the world as well that we are not aware of and that we often become aware of in hindsight or afterwards. And then, of course, as you said, our media, uh, the corporate media, tends to disregard the antecedents, right? Tends to disregard the things that occurred beforehand that led up to the event. No one's denying that Russia is involved in Ukraine, right? No one is denying that Russia hasn't sent mercenaries to Syria or that they don't have mercenaries in Libya right now. No one is denying that. The, the issue is is that yeah, sure. we, we use the word mercenaries, and I think sometimes we use them too loosely. Syria and I know Syria and Iran have a defense pact. So when a, another country feels they are attacked and seeks the allies to help them fight back against that force. That's not considered a mercenary. And I think Russia is invited. I think that's a big thing about Syria is that we are not invited. We are a occupying power. But the fact that Russia has been invited by the government of Syria, using the word mercenary, just seems to have a more pejorative meaning. Oh, in the case of Syria, the Russian military is there. And that's not who I was referring to. I was referring to the actual, there are actual mercenaries. There's several Russian companies. One is called, the most famous of which is called the Wagner Group, basically Russia's version of Blackwater, if very you will. Very good, very good. And, and they have, and so in, in Syria and also in Libya, the Wagner Group has a large presence. And they function um, in the conventional understanding of a mercenary organization where they are paid soldiers in someone else's country. But what you said, Pedro, is absolutely true. The Russian military is in Syria. They have been in Syria for about five years now at the request of the Syrian government. There are also two militias from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Iran that are also in Syria fighting on behalf and at the request of the Syrian government. Yeah, and I would not characterize those as mercenaries. But getting back to uh, what we were saying about, so things get left out, right? Things get left out of the conversation about what led up to the event. So often what we hear about Russia is about how Russia has been increasingly hostile to the West over the last decade, how Russia has been aggressive, how Russia is sending troops and weapons around the world, etc. But that leaves out all the things that led up to that. That leaves out that, you know, going back a couple of decades, how the United States promised Russia that we would not expand NATO, that we would not expand NATO, particularly eastward up to Russia's borders. And that was broken. Nearly as soon as it was promised to them, the United States broke it, started expanding NATO, started arming Russia's neighbors, started putting its troops uh, basically on Russia's boundaries. And now when, the, when Russia looks west, they see a whole phalanx of American and NATO armored forces uh, right on their border that often conduct very large exercises. That type of U.S. belligerence is often left out in the lead-up. You know, and with these stories about Afghanistan, you have to say, well, where does it begin? I mean, this goes back we, we could go back to the fact that the United States landed troops at the end of the First World War in both Western Russia and in Siberia in order to intervene in the Russian Civil War and stop the Bolshevik uh, revolution there. I mean, so we can go back 100 years to try and figure out where this begins. But I think it, it, it's fair. You have to acknowledge that 
the, the Russia and American uh, fighter planes fought each other over the skies of Korea you know, in, the, in the early 1950s, that Russia supported Vietnamese uh, forces uh, in their struggle for liberation against, you know, the occupying United States, and on and on. You can keep digging into this. But I think with Afghanistan, what's important to, to note is that, and this gets left out a lot, that Russia invaded Afghanistan after the United States started supporting the Islamist groups in Afghanistan. So in the year prior to, to, to the Soviet Union's invasion, I should say, not Russia, but Soviet Union, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, the United States in a plan hatched up by Zygmunt Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, had this idea that we will basically lay a trap for the Soviets in Afghanistan. We will cause uprisings in Afghanistan. We will arm these Islamist militant groups, and the Soviet Union will basically be lured into this trap of invading Afghanistan. So it, it, the, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan in 1979, but in the year prior uh, to that, the United States starts funding Islamist militant groups in Afghanistan as part uh, of an effort to cause these uprisings that would bait or lure the Soviet Union into invading. And this is clear. Zygmunt Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Bob Gates, who went on to become Secretary of Defense and Director of Central Intelligence, attested this in their memoirs, that this type of trap for the Soviet Union, which actually worked and was successful, was to pay back for the Vietnam experience, for the Vietnam War, for Russia helping the Vietnamese and killing so many Americans, as well as helping the Vietnamese defeat the Americans. So, it, so you know, this so idea this is actually, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but just this is actually those Stinger missiles that you, that were taking down uh, that, the Soviet that's aircraft, right? right? Mm. That's right. And that, that comes in later. That comes in several years after the okay. Soviets have invaded. But but we're talking about in early 1979. Okay. The Soviets invade in December of 1979. In early 1979, around uh, springtime, I believe, the United States starts arming these various groups because what had occurred in 1978 in Afghanistan was there was a yeah. Marxist revolution. Th yeah. That's what I wanted and, to have you speak to yeah. because my understanding of reading Afghan history was before the 79 period, immediately before that, there was actually very progressive governments that mm -hmm. were creating new programs that were actually liberating women rights issues and all sorts of more progressive rights that had never even seen the light of day in Afghanistan. I wanted to just share with folks that we're visiting with Matthew Ho. He is a member of the advisory boards of Expose Facts, Veterans for Peace and World Beyond War. In 2009, he resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the Afghan war by the Obama administration. He previously had been in Iraq with the State Department team and with the U.S. Marines. He is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and is a 100% disabled veteran. So thank you for your service and thank you for your continued service at the level of history. Let me ask you this. I think it's important to acknowledge that number one, there has been no proof provided that Russia had a bounty program. That's number one. Now, if they did, whether it was justified, I think you've already spoke very eloquently to some important information people should consider in making their own determination from there. But in my experience, one of the things I see in U.S. foreign policy generally is we often try to provoke other parties to commit something that would then justify a conflict. In other words, our democracy, 
if we can really call it that, I think is based on the issue that the U.S. public has to be behind these foreign policy initiatives. So therefore, the information control is so important in order to shape the information world so people say, oh yeah, we need to invade Iraq. We need to, we went through all that. And documented a pattern of those historical examples earlier in the show. And I think that any country that has intelligent leaders, which I think all of these countries we've been talking about do, they know that to provide any pretext that could elicit potential retaliation for the United States is suicide. The United States is overwhelmingly the most powerful military nation in the world and that type of thing. So I would be very surprised if Russia had any retaliatory, well, they may have had the motive, but not that they acted on it, number one. Number two, is some of these very same accusations came up in 2017 and 2018. Can you talk about those a little bit and the validity or invalidity of where they went? Yeah, right. So in 2017, 2018, accusations were made that the Russians were providing weapons to the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, the only confirmed weapons transfers uh, that we know of from Russia to Afghanistan were actually from Russia to the Afghan government in 2016. And, you know, the, the proof that was provided by American media of these accusations of this transfer of weapons to the Taliban were just, you know, videos or photos of Taliban fighters holding Russian-style weapons. Those weapons could have been in Afghanistan for 20 or 30 years. They could have come from the 14 or 15 or however many different countries manufacture those types of weapons now. I mean, so uh, the, the provenance of those weapons is, you know, uh, completely unknown. But the, the major thing was that when senior U.S., NATO, and Afghan officials were asked about these transfer of weapons or supposedly the, the veracity of these rumors, basically, they all said, we have no evidence. You know, we, we're, we're investigating it, but we've seen nothing to corroborate it. You know, and that came from senior American officials like the Secretary of Defense or senior European officials like NATO Secretary General or the Afghan Minister of Defense. I mean, so in multiple, not just those three people, but multiple officials, you know, including during testimony to Congress said we don't have any evidence of it. Mm -hmm. However, you see now those rumors continuing to be repeated, even though they were never proved and under, you know, testimony and reporting, it was said that there's no evidence of it. Mm -hmm. So that's the type of, of, of issues we have with the, the, the way corporate media is working on this, citing assertions that aren't true to justify motivations for Russia to be involved uh, in Afghanistan mm -hmm. in a nefarious way, harming the United States. Mm -hmm. And you always have to look at this, you know, Pedro, in a sense of like, you know, who benefits? Who would benefit more from this? You know, I have no doubt that there is a report that says Russia is involved, but everything we know about that report comes from interrogations. And the Afghan government uh, tortures as a matter of course. I mean, that that's a fact. Uh, this, uh, so this these interrogations are done with torture, and what do we know about torture? We know that torture doesn't work. That torture gives you the answer you want, not the answer that is correct or true or factual. So you have these reports that were made under torture, probably, or most likely, about Russia, and then that somehow becomes stated as fact. And all the evidence that has been provided so far is it's not conclusive, the fact that there was money there. You know, the guy was a drug, the guy was a drug lord, and they found money in his house. Somehow indicative that Russia is paying bounties. None of it is conclusive, you know. I mean, it wasn't like there was a, they have a there was a receipt 
you know, on top of that thing of, of money. Right. What they're alleging is pretty much absolute certainty, and there yeah. is none of that. I, 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 I mean, it's one thing. I'm sitting here. I'm not saying that I know what happened, but I know when there's not evidence to support certainty and when there is evidence to support certainty, and it's never there, but it's always claimed and through all of those other examples. So, hey, we need to take a quick break, so we'll be back right after this with Matt Howe. 